Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What does it mean for a generation of young people to come of age seeing other young black people routinely endangered, attacked, or killed? That's a question that propels Elizabeth Alexander's new book of essays titled The Trayvon Generation on what has shaped those who grew up in the past 25 years, including her two sons, and what they now face. The race work of the generations of my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my parents, and myself, she writes, is the work of our children's generation. We'll talk with Alexander about where the Trayvon generation finds its joy. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In her latest book of essays, poet and author Elizabeth Alexander turns her attention to young people who grew up in the last 25 years, to her two sons, who are part of what she calls the Trayvon generation. I believe that this generation is more vulnerable and traumatized than the last, she writes, about those who've always known stories like Trayvon's and George Floyd's and Breonna Taylor's and Philando Castile's and and on and on. I want my children to be free, says Alexander, who joins me now. Elizabeth Alexander, welcome to Forum. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me to talk. Well, really glad to have you here. And I actually want to start not by asking about your sons, but by asking you first about your dad, Um, (laughs) because you describe him as a very free black man. You write that my father is a very free black man. And once you have been inculcated with that worldview, there is no acceptable alternative. And I was so taken by that line. What what does that mean? How is he a very free black man? Well, um, I'm happy that you were taken with the phrase, because as you know, in the book, I invite people to look around and see and see where they see free black men, free black people, black people who uh, operate and carry themselves outside of the strictures and constraints that say, uh, we are not enough, that say, uh, you know, we are not full citizens, that say we are three-fifths human beings, that say, you know, we should be grateful to be in positions uh, of power sharing. Um, My father, Clifford Alexander, um, carried himself in that manner at 88 carries himself in that manner and what that meant for me growing up and 
more importantly, not just for me and for my brother, but um, he was, my, my dad's a race man. So, you know, every minute of his professional life has been devoted to uh, making the world a more just place for more people, uh, for uh, inviting more folks to uh, the, the table uh, of, uh, you know, power in society, in the law, um, uh, in government, uh, in, in every space he's been, it's been, he is a door opener. Mm. Uh, he is someone who, I mean, he was um, chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Uh, and so in doing that work was saying, you know, you got to have a job. How do we make sure that everybody has uh, fairness of access uh, and the ability to make their own lives? He was did civil rights work, was a civil rights advisor to President Johnson and uh, helped uh, worked on the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. And, you know, before that was uh, a director of a group called HARU, Harlem Youth Opportunity Organization, Harlem, where my parents are both from, where I was born. So that is his work, but it is a mindset. It is an attitude uh, yes. that said that, that, you know, we deserve to be here. And, and it's not just about me and my children. Uh, it's about making sure that everybody is uh, uh, able to, um, you know, live 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 a life of uh, of satisfaction and contribution. Yeah. And, <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. So that so 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 that's that's dad. Um, and you know, <laughs> and I think that that having someone who who would say you don't have to accept that paradigm. Someone who would say, as I write about in the book. You know, you always have to have your fu money in your pocket, <laughs> and this was an important thing for me as a woman as well. Uh, that you know, it, it's like you know, it used to be a dime when I was coming up. The idea that you always need a dime for a phone call. I guess now what we would say is is don't let your cell phone die. <laughs> um, but you know that that any bad situation. You couldn't let it kill your soul. You couldn't let it endanger you. That you have to understand the power of walking away. Uh, and that you have to also understand that if the situation doesn't make space for you, that doesn't change who you fundamentally are. Yeah. I, I love this point where you you talk about this kind of advice you give, where you say it, it may not always be practical in the moment, yes. but it was soul-saving which is such a great way of thinking about it. Um, the reason, and I think that yeah, that go ahead. Attitude, just to say, I think that that attitude, certainly the way that I I took it, is again, it's not just for the child of, you know, it's something that that says, what world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world of people who are meek and afraid? Do you want to live in a world where it's okay for some people to diminish others, or do you want to live in a world where everyone is theoretically trying to be at full capacity. Uh, that is a, a rich and wonderful and fascinating world. So whether that's our workplaces or our communities or other ways that we, we build togetherness, um, I think that, uh, you know, that's the world I want to live in. Yeah. It really also comes through with regard to when you talk about wanting your children to be free, you're not talking just about your own two sons. You want the children of the Trayvon generation to be fully alive, to all thrive and be, be fully alive. Can yes. you talk a little bit about what you mean 
by the Trayvon generation? Um, well, um, and per perhaps I, I could read how I define it in, in the book, if, if you would want me to read now. I mean, okay, great. Um, and uh, there's a little, a little preamble. Um, this is a book written by a poet. <laughs> so, <laughs> this one was shot in his grandmother's yard. This one was carrying a bag of Skittles. This one was playing with a toy gun in front of a gazebo. Black girl in bright bikini, black boy holding cell phone. This one danced like a marionette as he was shot down in a Chicago intersection. The words, the names, Trayvon, Laquan, bikini, gazebo, Lucy, Skittles, two seconds, I can't breathe, traffic stop, dashboard cam, 16 times, his dead body lay in the street in the August heat for four hours. The kids got shot and the grown-ups got shot, which is to say the kids watched their peers shot down and their parents' generation get gunned down and beat down and terrorized as well. The agglomerating spectacle continues. Here are a few we know less well. Danny Ray Thomas, Johnny Germain Rush, Nania Kane, Dejuan Hall, Atatiana Jefferson, Demetrius Brian Hollins, Jacqueline Craig and her children, and then the iconic Alton Sterling, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Walter Scott, Brianna Taylor, Philando Castile. I call the young people who grew up in the past 25 years the Trayvon generation. They always knew these stories. These stories formed their worldview. These stories helped instruct young African Americans about their embodiment and their vulnerability. The stories were primers in fear and futility. The stories were the ground soil of their rage. The stories instructed them that anti-Black hatred and violence were never far. They watched these violations up close and on their cell phones so many times over. They watched them in near real time. They watched them crisscross and concentrated. They watched them on the school bus. They watched them under the covers at night. They watched them often outside of the presence of adults who loved them and were charged with keeping them safe in body and soul. So that's how I define the Trayvon generation. Wow. And, and also that is, of course, the title essay of your, your book, um, but also it appeared in the New Yorker in 2020, forming the foundation of this book, the Trayvon generation. And as you read that, and I take it all in once again, I, I have to just think about the effect that that must have. Um, and I know that that's really what you meditate on in a big way as part of this, and also just the access that you point out that this generation mm -hmm. has had to the images of this, to be inundated through technology with the images of this. What have you learned about just that combined impact? Well, I, I think that um, the, the technology is, is so very, very important. And I'm also, you know, very careful to say, yeah, cell phones themselves are not the problem, right? I mean, you know, um, yep. there has always been uh, racially uh, based violence. It's always been disproportionate. There's always been disproportionate um, police aggression uh, against black and, and brown people. Um, if you look back at some of the iconic stories in American culture, we might think to 1955 about Emmett Till, you know, who went from Chicago to visit family in Mississippi over the summer, was as a teenage boy, young teenager, was accused of whistling at a white woman and was taken from his family home 
and uh, murdered and, uh, and sunk in the river. His mother had the body dredged, brought the body to Chicago, put the body ruined as it was in an open casket, invited thousands of people to come through that church and allowed Jet Magazine to photograph and distribute the picture, as she said, you know, so the world could see what they did to my child. So that's one technology. But if you were a young black person at the time, you would encounter it in Jet Magazine, in your family's living room on the coffee table, or as it was in my grandfather's home on a, a rack on the back of, uh, of the bedroom door were all of those Jet Magazines. Uh, you know, you, 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 you would look at the image in a family context. If you look forward to, let's say, Rodney King, uh, and that videotaped police beating. That was really very new technology. It wasn't even on a phone. Um, uh, you know, um, George Holiday recorded it on a video recorder and then it was circulated on television. We didn't have the wide range even of televised opportunities that we did right now. But right now with everybody with a cell phone in their hands, literally an extension of their bodies and the repeatability that you can both control and not control, right? Uh, with how often something is repeated and repeated and repeated. And when you add to that, that society, we hope, moves forward on questions of racial progress. So, you know, you might expect one thing in 1955 before the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and, you know, all kinds of other landmarks in desegregation uh, and increased opportunity in this country. But what do you expect in 2020? And I think that that is, you know, the, the combined, you know, infinite repeatability often in isolation that technology allows and also where you would hope society would be at this point and not being there uh, is, is part of what's so devastating. Mm. We're talking with Elizabeth Alexander, author of The Trayvon Generation. More after the break, I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. 61% of Americans believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases, according to a Pew survey last week. That's at odds with the draft Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade. We look at whether the court's at risk of losing the public's trust, and we want to hear from you. 
Has the threat to Roe changed your view of the court? You can always email us ahead of the show at forum at kqed.org or leave a voicemail with your thoughts at 415-553-3300. This hour, we're talking with Elizabeth Alexander, poet, scholar, educator, and author of the book The Trayvon Generation, where she asks the question of what it means for a generation of young people to come of age seeing other young people routinely endangered, attacked, or killed. And Elizabeth Alexander, we were just talking about that before the break, and I want to invite our listeners, if they have thoughts as well about the impact of that on the Trayvon generation, or if you are a part of the Trayvon generation, and how you feel about or have been shaped by the stories of Trayvon Martin and and numerous other stories like his, 866-733-6786, the number to call, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Just before the break, Elizabeth Alexander, you were saying you you think we will move forward. And, And it's been interesting because as you talk about how this generation is maybe more vulnerable and more traumatized than the last, it, it does make me ask, how do you see your generation? What do you see as as having shaped its view of racial progress? Well, I, I love that question. And a few others have been asking me that since the book came out. And I was interestingly surprised that I didn't have, I'm still working on an answer um, to that very, very good question. Um, I think certainly, um, I grew up in a hopeful generation. Uh, you know, maybe we could call me the I have a dream generation, which is to say, I think there is a version of the civil rights movement uh, and Dr. King's vision and rhetoric being formative, which they certainly were to me, that isn't only rosy. You know, I saw the civil rights movement as struggle, I saw it as, you know, you know, two steps forward, sometimes five steps back, three steps forward, you know, I I, I do understand um, that history doesn't move in a straight line up the mountain. Um, But um, I think that I certainly felt there was progress. Um, And uh, so it is striking to me um, that Uh, You know, I would have thought, and that's one of the premises of of the book, you know, the race problem, central as it is, uh, and as unresolved as it is in America, uh, the problem of great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, parents, you know, mine, and now that our children are inheriting this unsolved problem, uh, I did not think that we would be here. Even though you know, to each generation, it's challenge and struggle. Yes, there's this point where you say, "I believed that representation mattered, and that if more mm-hmm. of us occupied spaces where justice-minded decisions could be made, power shared, and examples set, the race would move forward." And I'm so struck by how you wrote, "I believed." So it's past yeah. tense, meaning you no longer believe or or that this generation and, and we all along with them are realizing that that isn't enough? Yes, there are a number of points in the book where I ask myself, like I say, I believed this. Do I believe this? 
And another question that I ask myself is, uh, I believed that if I shared art, culture, learning, history, critical thinking, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm an educator my, my whole life um, in African-American studies and have believed that uh, the secret to everything uh, is in art, culture, um, and, and the ability that African-American studies gives you to be able to think absolutely, you know, just like a scimitar uh, about what does it mean to, that you can love your country and critique your country at the same time. You can love your community and hold it to account. You know, you can, we are all works in progress. We need to continue to demand more and it does nobody any favors to say that, you know, things are solved that are not solved, that things are, have been addressed that have not been fully addressed. So I think that, you know, that kind of teaching faith too, you know, that like, you know, it can all happen in, in the classroom because classroom is um, intense community over the period of a semester where transformation happens. And I still do believe that. I see it all the time. And every classroom I've taught in for 30 some years uh, has been for the most part mixed classrooms uh, where I've seen people grapple through culture with questions of, uh, of race and, 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 you know, come out in a, in a, in a, in a better place, but it's not enough. Mm. It's not enough. And so, you know, I tend the garden with the flowers I know how to nurture. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that also what I say very plainly is people of color did not build this racist society. Yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm speaking as well, uh, you know, to, um, to, to white people and to everybody to say, you know, this problem is, is for, for all of us to address and feel responsible for, not just the people who didn't create it. We're talking with Elizabeth Alexander, and if you want to join the conversation with any questions or thoughts that Elizabeth Alexander's words are bringing up for you, you can do that by emailing us, forum at kqed.org, posting them online on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or by calling us, 866-733-6786. Perhaps you want to share the powerful event of racial injustice that shaped your generation, as well as what is shaping the Trayvon generation. You mentioned films that you say address the Trayvon generation with particular power. And as you're mentioning art, too, I'm remembering when you started describing Hiro Murai's video for Flying Lotuses, Never Catch Me. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that video and why it is such a reflection of the Trayvon generation in a way? Oh, it's such a powerful video. And, and Hiro Murai, who, of course, uh, you know, has, has worked with Flying Lotus, has worked as a director with Kendrick Lamar, uh, now directs most of the episodes of uh, Donald Glover's Atlanta. Uh, really extraordinary, extraordinary director. And, and importantly, in collaboration with these great Black artists. And so um, uh, in the one that you mentioned, it starts off with a scene that's become iconic. Uh, and that is a a, 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 a black church community uh, with a funeral of two black children. Uh, and the black children in their funeral finery are laid out in the open casket in the front. The community is absolutely devastated. And then 
amazingly uh, and, and they jump out of the casket and start dancing extraordinarily beautifully dancing down the aisle and out of the church and for a moment you think these children have come to life these children weren't murdered yes you know these children weren't shot these children are with us again but you see that the, the congregation can't see that they continue to mourn because it's only a dream it's only a fantasy and so you see and i think that this is why i wanted to write about it in the book the combination of they're absolutely galvanizing physical life force. These kids are dancing. These kids are free. These kids are joyful. These kids are propulsive. They go out of the church and they go into a car to drive away. And there's, again, an exhilarating moment where you think, you know, these kids are, you know, kids can't drive. These, these kids <laughs> are, are acting out a fantasy, you know, of when they get older. But they're driving their own hearse. Yeah. They're driving away from the church. They won't get older. And so I think that like so much, and also he's just got a gorgeous, gorgeous eye. So, you know, it's just beautiful to watch these beautiful children yes. um, and the tones and the colors. I mean, you know, it, it are, are just extraordinary. Um, but I think that the, it's more than poignancy. I mean, it's, it's just, it's devastation where you see the what should be and what could be at the same time that you feel the, 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 the grief of what's been taken and by extension, uh, the vulnerability of our, of our, of our kids. Uh, so if you think also, I mean, there are, are too many cases to name, but you know, if you think about Tamir Rice, you know, outside of the gazebo, um, you know, playing in the park, uh, shot at at a long range in mere seconds of the police officer driving up. I think that because we see the before in that video of a 12-year-old playing in the park and then he's gone. How, how do we as a society, how do we reckon with that? How do we make sense of that? And so that's also why I do think it's important to turn us to the history and ask the question, you know, Black people were brought to this country, uh, you, you know, as enslaved people for the most part to build the nation with no, uh, you know, no reward uh, and uh, in, the, in the legal status of three-fifths human beings. We've got to remember that that point of origin has not been all the way worked out of the culture and the tropes of dehumanization of black people yes. persist. Two nights ago on the NBA, you know, like someone was talking about, you know, described a, a, a basketball player, African-American as, uh, you know, knuckle, knuckles dragging on the, on the ground. Mm. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, and like, let's just see what people say today, right? So, yes. so, and, and I believe that dehumanization is a precondition for doing violence. Could you read the poem by Clint Smith? It's your, what you're talking about reminds me so much of Clint Smith's, your national anthem poem that you feature in the book. Yes, absolutely. And for some context, um, the book um, is a weaving of my words, 
poems uh, in their entirety by uh, some of our, our greats, Gwendolyn Brooks, Lucille Clifton, Natasha Trethway, Adrian Sue, Clint Smith, so that they are part of the conversation. And then of visual artworks, uh, very beautifully reproduced. We worked hard to make sure that that happened and I'm thrilled with uh, how, 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 how keen the reproductions are by Carrie James Marshall, mm -hmm. you know, Carrie Mae Weems, Lorna Simpson, uh, Dawood Bay, you know, just to name some of, of the great artists who are artists who are in here. So that's the texture of the book, yes. because I want you to feel the poem, look at the art, hear my words, and let it be uh, a conversation. So I know the art is, is so beautiful and the pages so love. I tend to underline books and I really hesitated because it itself <laughs> is like such a, a lovely piece of art. So, but anyway, you can, you on. can, you can sticky note it and that won't, <laughs> yeah. uh, that won't, won't affect the, the, the artwork. And I wish I could hold it up on the radio for everyone to see. Um, so this is uh, by Clint Smith. And I think that it gets at the perennialness and sorrow of race in America, your national anthem. Today, a black man who was once a black boy like you got down on one of his knees and laid his helmet on the grass as this country sang <clears throat> its ode to the promise it never kept. And the woman in the grocery store line in front of us is on the phone and she is telling someone on the other line that this black man who was once a black boy like you should be grateful we live in a country where people aren't killed for things like this. You know, she says, in some places they would hang you for such a blatant act of disrespect. Maybe he should go live there instead of here so he can appreciate what he has. And then she turns around and sees you sitting in the grocery cart, surrounded by lettuce and yogurt and frozen chicken thighs. And you smile at her with your toothless gum smile. And she says that you are the cutest baby she has ever seen and tells me how I must feel so lucky to have such a beautiful baby boy. And I thank her for her kind words, even though I should not thank her because I know that you will not always be a black boy, but one day you may be a black man and you may decide your country hasn't kept its promise to you either. And this woman or another like her will forget that you ever were this boy and they will make you into something else and tell you to be grateful for what you've been given. It's such a, such a powerful uh poem about sort of where we are today. We have this comment from a listener, Noel, who tweets, a recent UC Berkeley Haas study found that despite people saying they want equality, people in advantaged positions view equality itself as harmful and tend to think that inequality benefits them. People, unfortunately, are thinking zero sum. What do you think, Elizabeth Alexander, in terms of the status of our consciousness overall. I mean, I love the point you were making earlier about how we all are responsible for fixing it and how you don't wring your hands at the fact that previous generations of Black people have not fixed it because it's not like they created white supremacy. Well, and even further that it is, you know, Black people sort of writ large, not each and every Black person ever, <laughs> but Black people writ right. large who have showed the country 
what it means to be human in the face of being classified as subhuman. So think about that too, you know, um, and, and to the state of our consciousness now, I mean, what I think is very important is that we have different models of leadership and community that are not zero sum that don't, uh, and, 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 and there are many, you know, there are some feminist ways of thinking and there's some, you know, Native American ways of thinking and there's some communal ways of thinking and there's some, you know, uh, you know c- c- different kinds of communitarian ways of thinking that don't even accept the premise of zero sum, you know, that are about, based on the premise that everything can be shared, that there can be enough land, enough money, enough, like, what, what do we know? This is a big old country with a whole lot of money and a whole lot of everything. Um, so what does it mean to say that we will operate from the premise that everyone will have enough and that you don't have to feel that some, nothing is ever being taken away from you, both because there's enough and because it was yours illegitimately to begin with. Got to reckon with that, I think, as a society writ large. Well, Chris writes, I agree with Elizabeth Alexander's former belief that the past sensibilities of knowledge could open the system up, but our system is broken. It was built by one group of people. We must change the system and require inclusion of all races, genders, young and old, in making decisions in our governance. We are talking with Elizabeth Alexander. Elizabeth Alexander is a poet, an educator, an author, also president of the Mellon Foundation. And we're talking about her latest book of essays titled The Trayvon Generation. Going into the break, we're going to hear a little bit of the song we spoke about earlier. This is Flying Lotus's Never Catch Me featuring Kendrick Lamar. Stay with us as we'll have more with Elizabeth Alexander and your calls. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Elizabeth Alexander, author of 
the Trayvon generation. And I want to invite your listeners, if you are part of the Trayvon generation growing up in the last 25 years, how you feel you've been shaped by the story of Trayvon Martin and the numerous other stories like his. Or if you have other powerful events of racial injustice that have shaped your generation, built a consciousness around your generation that you want to share, feel free. And as always, with your questions or comments for Elizabeth Alexander, 866-733-6786, the number, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, ways to reach us at KQED Forum, emailing us forum at kqed.org. Let me go to caller Michael in Alamo. Hi, Michael. Thanks for waiting. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Go right ahead. Yeah, um, I'm an older millennial, so I didn't know if I was part of the Trayvon generation, but I was blessed enough to grow up with like my grandparents and my great grandparents. And, you know, mm-hmm. they would tell us, you know, we couldn't go to this side of town. You know, when, when I was a kid, this and this happened, this and this happened, you know, there was thousands of Emmett Till's, you know, that was, mm-hmm. that happened to people. And I feel like, you know, I was never naive to what was going on or how I have to walk around, you know, America. But the only thing that struck me was how other people, once it started being filmed, you know, mm-hmm. how other people responded to it, even though we know there was a long history of this, you know. Mm-hmm. And I I honestly and personally think it, it it's the school level. You know, I think if they taught, our history, mm-hmm. a lot of people would be more understanding and they would realize it would click for people that, oh, this has been going on for 200 years, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if I was bringing anything to the table, but I think that, you know, since I did, I was blessed to be raised with older generation black people, you know, that I was always accustomed to these things that could happen to you and areas mm-hmm. not to go and always act a specific way when you're when you're in a group of mixed companies, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I, I just really appreciate, you know, I really appreciate the conversation that you guys are having, but I didn't think this was new, you know? Yeah. So that, yeah. that's pretty much it. Michael, can, thanks. Can I, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I, I just want to say, I, I love it, it. That's so powerful. I'd like to know, what you learned from some of those elders about survival? What did they teach you about about survival, about joy, about freedom? What did you What do you What did you learn from them? Oh, see, I'm I'm from California. I'm a California native, but you know, my grandparents and great grandparents they came from Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and you know, when they got here, you know, it was it was different. You know, California was supposed to be the dream. You know, mm-hmm. and and in reality, no matter where you go, it was never the dream for us. And you know, there's one thing someone told me, you know, that really stuck with me for my life was that if there was a universal language that everyone spoke, you know, it would be anti-blackness. And mm-hmm. even though there are people of color, there's anti-blackness rooted into people of color. So when Mm -hmm. you're in a very marginalized community like the African-American community and you're demonized, victimized, you know, you're, you're the thug, you're the, you're everything. 
and that stands to every other group of people see you that way, you know, it takes a lot, you know, to lift yourself up from that and go day to day and, and, and live the straight and narrow. And I think that's what my, my family installed in all of us, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. it takes a lot and not, and, you know, having this skin and walking this life isn't easy, but Mm -hmm. it is, it is something that God said, this is, this, this is for you, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that's helped me through a lot of, you know, I deal with a lot of mixed spaces and that line for me has really helped me, you know, see things a little differently, you know, Mm -hmm. and take Mm -hmm. a step back and realize, you know, you know, this is microaggressions, you know, you need to navigate Mm -hmm. the microaggressions, you know, you need to navigate the streets, you know, the, the areas you go to the city, you know, in the city a different way than other people wouldn't even have to think about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you're lucky that you, that you, that you had those elders to learn from. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Michael, thank you. I loved that so much. One of the things you said about your own children, Elizabeth Alexander, is that it's a measure of success that your sons dance. <laughs> yes. What does um, that mean? To and you? Yeah. Um, what that means to me, you know, and I, I'm chuckling because, you know, now they would be like, you know, and now you're talking about us too much in public. <laughs> 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 um, but, um, you know, they, they've, I, I, I don't, I show them what I write about them before I publish it because I, I think that's important. Yeah. Um, but look, I mean, like, to be human, to be alive, to be in these bodies, to be moved by music. I mean, how how ancient is dance? How ancient is song? How ancient is laughter? How primal are these things to what it is to be alive and a human being? So that is the ultimate thing that I want for them. I want them to have joy in this life. I want them to have joy in this life. And I want them, you know, when you have to tell your children at, at, at seemingly such an early age, this could happen to you. Here's what you do if this happens to you. You know, I mean, I, 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 in talking back about my father, you know, that his first negative police encounter was when he was eight years old and his mother had already taught him get out of the situation with the police alive. We're talking 1940 in Harlem, Mm. get out of the situation alive, but take, memorize the badge number. And then we will handle it when you are home and you are safe. You know, you, 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 you want your children. I mean, I don't really believe there's any such thing as, um, I don't like innocence that is ignorant, right? Um, I think you can be pure of heart and spirit and not be denied empowering knowledge, but you want them to dream. You want them to, you know, everybody should be able to be free and reckless in their body at some point, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. everyone should be able to, you know, walk down the street talking loud and laughing with your friends and cutting up and not have that, you know, be read as you're loud, you're a threat. I mean, for, for being expressive, for being yourself, for being a kid, uh, you know, so 
um, I, I feel that, that my children are, um, they're now 22 and 24. Um, they are, they are righteous young men who are, are, are doing work that is helpful to more than just themselves, which is the most important thing, um, I think. And they are, I'm knocking wood, mommy knock wood. They are, they are healthy and they are joyful and they uh, are very, very, very proud to be black. Very, very proud to be able to share their culture and history with whoever wants to be in the space of it. Um, you know, and uh, if I felt that they were walking around always cramped, but I know sometimes how they feel, you know, when my six foot five son says, I, I, I jingled my keys in the elevator because they were looking at me like I didn't live here. Someone asked me if I lived in my own building. Mm. I produced my keys to a stranger who questioned whether I lived in my home. And, and, you know, and that's not, that, that, that's, that's perhaps prelude to danger. That's not even danger, right? Um, or walking around, you know, back to, you know, Trayvon Martin walking around in their hoodies you know, you know, in, in situations that could become, could become dangerous. Yes. I, I don't want that to, to, to cramp their lives. Right. So much of when you talk about freedom of movement, of thought, of imagination, which is one of the things that dance expresses, I, I think that you're also just, it's also synonymous with feeling safe and truly being safe. Um, and, and I think about your meditations on motherhood and how, you say things like, I believed I could keep my sons alive by loving them and, and thinking about sort of the simultaneous, both the incredible expansiveness as well as the, the limits of love um, mm-hmm. when you're the parent of Black children. Um, Which I think, by the way, I mean, I think two important points to that. Um, I think that, and that's what it is to be a parent, <laughs> you know, I mean, I say, you know, motherhood is like, you have to keep this creature alive. That's your job. <laughs> yes. You have to keep this, this creature alive. The, the, the child will die if you do not tend it. So it doesn't get any more basic than that. Um, even though, you know, the edges get a bit polished as we get older. So I think that that's what motherhood's about, but also um, I think it very important that um, you know, even if a child is not, and I'm putting in quotation marks, your own child, you know, that we should all feel, I mean, I, you know, this is my practice. And I think that the poet Gwendolyn Brooks really puts it so well, you know, and she says, there's no such thing as other people's children, you know, that we, 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 we all need to care about our children, um, because our, our children are, um, you know, are more than the future. I mean, our children are, are, are us. We're talking with writer, poet, cultural critic, thinker, educator, Elizabeth Alexander, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You said something interesting earlier about sort of the freedom or the importance of of not being ignorant. And, And this listener, Thomas, writes, what does Elizabeth Alexander think about the effects of Black history being pushed out of classrooms because it's labeled critical race theory combined with this extreme suppression of 
Black voting. Also, Thomas wants me to thank thank you for this terrific guest. <laughs> but your oh, thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, thank you, Thomas. That's right at the heart of it. I mean, this is it's madness. You know, I mean, first of all, the the the, the term critical race theory. I remember when I started seeing it used in the way that it was used to talk about what it, it means to teach inclusive American history. And I thought like, is this the critical race theory that I taught at university? Like that was, you know, pioneered by these brilliant law scholars, uh, you know, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and, and, and others. Are they talking about that? Are they reading that, that stuff? Um, but they just, you know, took the term and made it, uh, you know, d- demonized it and made people afraid of learning their history. Now, as you know, in the book, I write about um, the great black historian, John Hope Franklin, who we know for his his African-American history textbook, From Slavery to Freedom, being commissioned in the state of California to write a textbook about American history in the 1960s, where he, you know, told all the strands and all the stories. So it was not a triumphalist history. Uh, It told, uh, you know, Native American history, African American history, Asian American history, you know, civil rights history. And there was immediately a disinformation campaign against it. He was called a communist. He was told that he was making white people feel guilty for simply teaching full stop American history in this textbook. So, you know, keeping people ignorant is a plan, (laughs) y'all. Okay, it is a plan with terrible results if we allow it to happen. And where it ties in to Thomas's good question about voter suppression is, you know, have we forgotten that we had to fight for a Voting Rights Act that happened, you know, in our lifetime? You know, have we forgotten that the, 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 the right to vote, the right to marry who you want to marry, that all of these things were achieved at least legally, but the legality hasn't held in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so, so I think that's why, you know, the, uh, the fight for education and the fight for democracy and our rights, we cannot let up for a second. We can't let up for a second. You know, we get excited and we we, you know, we celebrate as we should when, you know, landmark things happen, um, but we have to continue to live it and enforce it. And, um, and, and as is the case now, I believe, fight for it. Hmm. We're running a little short of time, but let me see if I can squeeze Pat in Oakland in here. Hi, Pat. Hi, folks. Uh, I was just wondering if Mr. Alexander has considered the importance of uh, more forcefully uh, facing these injustices uh, when they occur to you. Like, I'm thinking the instance you talk about with your son in the elevator, uh, my reaction and things that I've done over my last uh, many years are to confront those things and just be willing to take the danger. And I've found that the danger usually doesn't harm me. Uh, in fact, you know, I've been doing this so long, I can't imagine being another way. If somebody looks at me weird, I may ask them, why are they looking at me like that? And if they ask me if I live in the building, I says, well, let me see why you have the right, why you think you have the right to ask me a question like that. And Mm -hmm. refuse to uh, automatically uh, depend on them accepting you 
in order to have your rights. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, since the Civil War, I've been free. And I don't mm-hmm. have to ask anybody permission for me to act free. And if mm-hmm. they get in the way of that, we should encourage our kids to stop this at every encounter. And, you know, not, not every time is safe to do it. But, you know, you know, you can't argue with the police when they're pointing a gun at you. But you can do certain things to let them know that you have your rights and you're uh, not going to be uh, afraid to assert them. Pat, thanks. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Alexander. Yeah, I mean, you know, needless, if, if we knew each other a little better, you, you, you know, you'd know that uh, that uh, these these kids and myself are, are are trained in that mode as well. And hence the conversation about free black men. Uh, but I think that, you know, different situations, different people, different moods, different days. I'm tired of this. Think about Fannie Lou Hamer. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick of having this argument. I don't know. You know, in this day and age, I don't know what someone's capability of, you know, of doing harm is. You know, I think that 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 part of what's so difficult about microaggressions is that they're constant, and so you know, and there isn't only one way to respond that fits all situations, and you know, and kids, kids are kids. So um, I do believe in the full range. Uh, of human response, uh, including meeting fire with fire. You know, yeah. I think that that's very important. Um, but I also think that part of what's so hard is is the constancy of it. Yes. Where we are literally at 30 seconds, but I do wonder if there is more you want to add to that question that you've really sort of used, I think, to propel the ideas in this book, which is where this generation finds its power, its joy, its righteousness, its politics. Is there any last thought? Is it in art or cultural expression? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just leave you with these words. I feel like I, I, I said it better in the book and I, I make the argument for the importance of multi-generational um, struggle and connection. And then also say artists make radical solutions all day long soup from a stone, beauty from thin air. We see and try and discard and see again, we invent, we do it in the dark, we bring it into community. Artists continue to generate in a dangerous world that is nonetheless overflowing with life force and power. Well, thank you, Elizabeth Alexander, for the art of your words. I just so appreciate you being with us today. Thank you, Mina. This was a beautiful conversation and I truly appreciate it. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.